Thank you so much for beautiful music tonight. Turn your Bibles to 1 John. We'll review the last part of chapter 2 and begin in chapter 3 this evening. The epistle, the first epistle of John the Apostle to the church. Setting it up really quickly again, we are toward the end of the first century. This is the father of the congregation. He addresses them as little children. He's the spiritual father of the congregation. There's some who are teaching a Gnostic heresy, which goes something like this, that this rabbi Jesus couldn't really be the Christ because of the crucifixion, that perhaps at the baptism, the spirit of the Christ entered this rabbi, but surely, surely before the crucifixion, that's way too much flesh and blood, the spirit of God escaped because they really didn't see the importance and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The heresy taught that salvation was accomplished by having a certain knowledge, and, and of course this group had that knowledge, and they had left the church, which John the Apostle had founded, and so he writes them, writes the church, calls them little children, and warns them about this heresy that we're finding here at the end of the, the first century. Well, in verses 18 through 27... We have the warning against the Antichrist. Look at verse 18. Children, now that's a word he uses. And whenever he says children, he's probably starting a new section in the letter. Children, it doesn't mean the little ones. We saw last week it means all of those who are in the church. So he begins, they're children, it is the last hour. Now what does that mean, it is the last hour? The last hour is everything from the ascension of Jesus until his return. That time between his ascending to heaven and now we await his return for the church. That is the last hour, that time that we wait for his return. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming. And even now many Antichrists, plural, have arisen. From this we know it is the last hour. I said to you last week, if someone ever uses the word antichrist in Bible trivia, it comes from one of John's letters. That's the only place this word is ever in, in the New Testament. It is from these epistles only. But Jesus himself said that false Christ would come. And in the Thessalonica letters, Paul says that there is this Antichrist, he calls him the man of lawlessness, which is the spirit against the Christ par excellence. So there's this multiple Antichrist, those who are against the spirit of the Christ. And then there is ultimately, Paul teaches us, and apparently John does as well, this singular Antichrist who will be the premier enemy of the Christ. Well, they went out from us. These false teachers were once part of the church, and now they have left the church. They've gone out from us. They're not really of us, or if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order they might be shown that they were not of us. They are not of us. They have gone out. There is a difference between the church invisible and the church visible. Put another way, there is a difference between the church roles and the real kingdom of God. These folks had been on the roll at the church, probably at Ephesus, but now no longer. They have gone out from us, so they were never part of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. Anointing means the presence of the Spirit in the Scripture 
And you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now, this is the center argument in the epistle. Who is it that's lying? Who has the spirit of the Antichrist? The one who denies that Jesus, which is a word Savior, but it's a fleshly term for our Savior. Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what the heresy was saying, that Jesus couldn't really be the Christ, that you're saved by this certain knowledge, not by acknowledging Jesus as Lord or as Christ. And that's the Antichrist, verse 22, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. They were claiming, these heretics, that they had a good relationship with God, but he reminds them that you cannot have a relationship with God unless you go through his Son. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father, Jesus said, written by the same author, John chapter 14, unless they come by me. And so, you cannot have a relationship with the Father if you do not have a relationship with the Son. As for you, verse 24, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. This is one of my new favorite verses. I hope you like it. This is the promise that Jesus made to us, colon, eternal life. What is it that Jesus promised us? Those of us who say Jesus is Lord, those of us in Johannine language who were born again, what is it? Eternal life. You've been by graveside lately, you like this verse. What is it that Jesus promises us? eternal life. That's a good verse. That summarizes the whole future of the people of God. This, nail it down, John says, he himself made the promise, eternal life. And these things I've written to you concerning those, those false teachers, those antichrists who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Well, that's where we covered last week. Now, beginning in verse 28, we have the hope of God's children. This is from 2.28 down to 3.3, the hope of God's children. And now... Dear children, again, when he starts that children language, he's starting a new section. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, there are two words here to describe the return of the Christ. We're in that last hour, he said at the end of chapter 2, that last hour is the time from his ascension to the time of his return for the church. Well, what does he call that last hour, that return? What do we know? Well, look at the two languages. He appears. 
Now, interestingly enough, he's used this language of appearance multiple times for the first coming of the Christ. He calls it an appearance. We have seen him. He has appeared. He uses it in chapter 1 and verse 2. We have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which the Father has manifested to us or appeared to us. In chapter 3 and verse 5, maybe they're on your, your same page, just down just a little bit. Again, I've got this new Bible and a page. There we go. I got it. 3, 5. And you know that he appeared. There it is. He appeared in order uh, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. So the second coming of the Christ, there's two images he uses here, and the first language is the language of appearance. He appeared. Well, there's another language. He appeared like he appeared the first time. The second word used here and the Johannine letter is the idea to come. To appear is passive. It is to be revealed by God. The coming, he says, that's the other language that we have. Look at it again in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. So when he appears, might read it this way, when he is revealed, we have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame at his coming. The language for coming here. Is the language of a king coming and absolutely over his domain, inspecting part of his kingdom. The king is coming. He's coming to inspect part of his kingdom, get ready for the revelation or the revealing of the Christ, but also get ready for his coming. Uh, when I was uh, growing up in high school, there was a community college that my father taught out taught at. He taught medical technology at Greenville Community College. And all of a sudden, they were doing a full campus makeover. I mean, they were planting bushes where they've never been bushes. They were ripping the wrong color of brick off building and putting matching brick. It was like this total facelift of the whole campus. And I wondered, I asked my father, why are you guys spending all this money getting ready, pouring, repaving roads, planting new flower beds, actually changing the brick color to make everything match. And he said, well, don't you know, Ronald Reagan is coming. They refaced all the brick and the plants and got it all ready because it had been precedented in the history of that community college that a seated president would ever visit Greenville uh, Technical College, but he did. And so they remade the whole thing. It's that kind of language here. Get ready. The king is coming. Don't be caught in shame with weeds in the bushes. Get ready. Don't have the wrong color of brick on the building. Of course, moral language for our life. Get our hearts and our hands ready for the coming of the king. You don't want to shrink away in shame, he says. Verse 28. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, all of a sudden, we have a very much. Now, I said we can, one of the reasons we can be sure that this letter is written by John himself, the apostle, is a lot of Johannine or John-like language is used. Well, if you know any word that is of John, you know the word born again. 
right? You remember that whole discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Unless a man is born from above or born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. For John, to have a relationship with the Messiah was to be born anew or born from above. This language of being born again. He uses it a lot in this book, the idea of a spiritual birth. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. You, you see it again. No one who is born of God practices sin, he's going to say to us. Or in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. I, I could keep on and on, and I can take you in the gospel and do it again, but you understand that being born is a John term for beginning a relationship with Jesus as your Lord, with Jesus as your Christ. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Well, now in chapter 3, we've got two ideas on the table from chapter 2. One idea we have on the table is the parousia, the coming of the Christ, is the language of appearance or coming. He's coming again in the last hour. The other language we have is being born again, being born as his child. And now he brings together the two images of the new earth and the appearance together, beginning in, in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Children of God. Adoption is such a wonderful thing when a child who doesn't have a parent, now has parents. A wonderful thing when a child learns to look up and say to a new face, to a new father, daddy or father. And what ultimately we want in the eternal kingdom is to be a child of God and be able to join our Lord as he prayed to him, our Father who art in heaven. What a beautiful image. The Father has bestowed this great love. Don't you love that verse? See how much the Father loves us. See how much love the Father has poured out upon us. He loves us so much we can be called the children of God. We are the beloved sons of God. God has sent His Son that we can have eternal life. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. It's kind of an interesting idea that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teaches that once you profess Jesus is Lord, you'll have no more hardships, no more financial difficulties. You won't have any other relationship difficulties. Your kids will live perfectly. Well, if you've got a child, you know that one ain't true. Your children will live perfectly. Everything will go, your job will go just like you want it to go because, well, now that you've called him Lord, it's just going to, he's got this cosmic broom and he goes right in front of you and sweeps away all the challenges out of your life. Nothing could be further than the truth. You saw what the world did to Jesus. It ended with a crown of thorns and spikes. 
And Jesus himself said the world treated him that way. They would certainly treat his followers that way. The world hates the children of God. Beloved, verse 2, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. There's a contrast here between the known of what we are and who we are and the unknown who we will become in the glory of God. Our present state enables us to look forward to our future state where there'll be something much more wonderful. Now that we are actually the children of God, an even higher status awaits us in the future. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I like that, don't you? Our future in the kingdom of God. No one's eyes have seen, no one's ears have heard. You haven't even with your mind been able to conceive or fathom what God has prepared for your glory, for those who love him. We are children of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. We who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That language here in verse 2, that when he appears, appearance, again, that word for his second coming, when he appears, we haven't even seen what we'll be like. Know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Looking at the Christ will be like a reflection of his glory, a mirror to us, because we will see him just as he is. We shall see the glory of God as it is. Paul puts it this way in Romans. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies him just as he is pure. Now, in verses 4 through 10, he talks about the sinless uh, children of God. Now, we know throughout this book, he's already told us that God's children sin. In fact, he's told us in, in chapter 1 and verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he tells us if anyone does sin, then we have propitiation for our sins because he has paid for our sins. So, Bearing context, he's just told us we can't lie and say we're not sinners. And when someone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. So now bear that in mind when we begin in verse 4 and he says there's no sin. He means continual sin. Look at verse 4. Everyone who continually practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. He has the idea here. That all of humanity is divided between two camps. Children of the light, children of the darkness. Children of the devil, children of God the Father. Well, children of life, this is what he promised to us, eternal life, and children of death. 
Well, he begins that contrast between children of life and children of the devil. Verse 5, and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The freedom we have in Christ is freedom from sin and death. He appeared in order to take away sins. In him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, he's already said that they sin. He means abiding a continual sinful lifestyle. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. Two camps, the children of God, the children of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose. He might destroy the works of the devil. John tells us elsewhere in his gospel that the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he comes for. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Whose father? Who is your father? Whose child are you? Verse 9. No one who is born of God, this image, this John language of being born again, no one who is born of God continually practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born from above. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. There it is, the two fathers. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John has a great deal to say to us about the necessity of loving the brothers. He's already told us that you cannot love the Father earlier in the book if you do not love your brother. Practicing righteousness, part of the practicing of that righteousness is brotherly love as a mark of Christians, verses 11 through 18. For this is a message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. If we're going to be family, if we're going to be the children of God and not the children of the evil one, then we are to love one another. Not like Cain, who was of the evil one. He slew his brother, Abel. And why did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Not like the first two brothers. That's not the paradigm for brotherly love, where one murders the other. Do not be surprised, children, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who loves abides, who does not love abides in death. Now, that's a pretty interesting theological concept. What he's saying is this, one way you can know if you're a child of eternal life is by how much you love the, love the folks in church. One way you can know if you've really come into the family of God, the love of the Father is, do you love the brethren? 
We know, verse 14, we have passed out of death into life. Remember I told you last week to think about two spheres. And if you'll read the New Testament, this idea of two spheres, it'll help you a lot. Over here we have a sphere of Adam, the sphere of death, the sphere of darkness, the sphere of sin. Over here we have the sphere, the sphere of the second Adam, the Christ, the sphere of light and life and sinlessness. And Christ was born under the law of a woman in the first sphere. He's the one that moves from this sphere. This is a lot of Paul too. Moves from this sphere over to this sphere and he carries us with him. So look how he describes this sphere language. This is how you know you have passed from the sphere of death over to the sphere of life. How do you know? Well, do you love the brethren? Do you love your brothers and sisters in church? He who does not love abides in death. God is so captured by the word love. God is love. The cross was Love For God so, John tells us, the same writer, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Sounds like Jesus in Matthew 5, doesn't it? You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Back to the illusion of Cain and Abel. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. That we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. No greater love hath any man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friend. So he tells us, even as Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to be willing to lay down our life for the church too, for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You've got four jackets, and one of your brethren has no jacket. You keep four jackets in your closet. Well, what kind of love is that if you're following a God who gave his very life, and you won't give over a jacket? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. How do you know if you love if you're putting feet and hands to that love, if you're giving in deed and in truth, not what you talk about, but what you do. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and we assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, this language here, it's a language that he really doesn't trust his own heart when it comes to knowing exactly uh, what is right and what is wrong. Paul argues it the same way. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge no nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. That's the kind of language we have here. Our own hearts may clear us, verse 20, but that doesn't matter or condemn us, verse 19 and 20, for God is greater than our heart and God knows all things. Let me put it to you this way. If you didn't have God's word and you had to decide on your own what was right and wrong, 
How would that come out? Do you trust yourself enough apart from the revealed Word of God to decide what's right and what's wrong? I certainly don't trust myself that much. I'm good at justifying things. Any of you have that spiritual gift? I'm very gifted at that, justifying things. He says, it doesn't matter what you think. Your evaluation of self bears little, but rather there is God who knows all things. Verse 20. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask from him because uh, we receive, we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Man, that's a pretty good summary of all of Christendom right there. This is his commandment, that you believe in his Son, Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, you false teachers who were saying Jesus isn't the Christ, and that not only you love him, but you love one another like he commanded us. You know that when they ask Jesus what the two great commandments are, you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body, and that you love your neighbor what? As yourself. There's a repetition of the two great commandments. You believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and you love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. Those who have called Jesus Lord are indwelt with the Spirit of the Christ, and we know that we abide in him, and his Spirit also abides in us. Let us pray. Oh God, what powerful words. What an interesting angle and summary from the beloved disciple, the one whom our Lord loved. May we be challenged tonight not to judge ourselves by our own evaluation, but whether or not we're keeping the commandments and walking as he walked. And God, may we never be surprised at the world that would persecute us, even as it persecuted our Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.